Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Mecklenburg, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking once again with Illinois State climatologist Trent Ford, but before we get to Trent, we must introduce our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by local foods educator Katie Parker and Quincy. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are things going? I'm enjoying what appears to be a nice spring day, yet we're still at the tail end of winter, so we'll see how long this holds out. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, definitely enjoying this nice weather. It's a nice break from winter. Indeed, it's got me like chomping at the bit. I've got flats sewn in the basement. I am ready for whatever comes next. Um, but I haven't done the warm season veggies yet. The tomatoes and peppers, I'm still holding off. But we got some lettuces and things like that. Not sprouted, but they are started. Right. I think it's getting a lot of people itching to get get some work started. Uh, it was nice to get outside and pick up some sticks in the yard and uh, have plants started inside. So, yeah, it's definitely a nice change. Definitely. And someone who I know is loathing this warmer weather, but uh, regardless, probably still working outside and getting plants going. Horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello. Yeah, it definitely needs to cool off some, bring back the snow. And (laughs) (laughs) I did start some seed this past weekend, and we've already got cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower seedlings popping up. So we'll be here before we know it. Well, Ken, I think in in light of your distaste for warm winter weather, I think the topic for today is is appropriate because we are going to be discussing with uh, Trent about climate change and how it impacts uh, Illinois gardeners, agriculture, horticulture, life in general here in Illinois. So let us introduce our special guest for today, state climatologist Trent Ford. Trent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Good to be back on. Well, we are happy to have you here once again. And I have got to say, uh, since you've been on last time, I I mean, I've been dropping your name like hotcakes, (laughs) like special crops conference. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the one. Like, I know this guy, Trent Ford, uh, you know, growers meetings, uh, horticulture meetings. I'm like dropping this name. And and I actually got to use a term that, that you taught me last time, thermal inertia. Oh my gosh, Uh, the crowd was floored when I said that. And they're (laughs) like, who taught you that? And I said, Illinois State Climatologist, Trent Fords. Oh, Trent. (laughs) Hey, that's great. That's great. Yeah. No, actually, it's it's a good time of the year to talk about that, too, because it's uh, it's working against us this year, you know, or this time of the year. You know, it it, it takes a lot longer for things to warm up in the spring because uh, because we've been so cold for so long. So. Indeed. Yeah. And so we we have got a lot of questions about climate change. We kind of touched on this a little bit on the last show, but we really wanted to dive into it more for this one. And so uh, we, we have a, a list of uh, discussion items that we would like to cover with you. So, Katie, would you mind kicking us off this week, please? Absolutely. So I think we talked about touched on this the last time we spoke to you. Um, but there's two terms that we often confuse or can be confused with each other. So can you explain what the difference is between weather and climate? And then can you let us know what climate change is? 
Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to describe weather and climate uh, and this, the difference between them, a lot of analogies. Um, I'll start off with kind of the, the technical bits, which is that weather is really uh, all of the behavior of the atmosphere. Um, and I include the land in there as well uh, on, on shorter term timescales. We're talking maybe one to two weeks. Um, and the climate is sort of the behavior of the atmosphere over long time periods. Um, and so when we think about the weather, we characterize it as like a, what the temperature is going to be like today. Maybe it's going to rain or not, you know, what the wind is going to blow, that sort of thing. When we think about the climate, it's more about sort of the expectation of what the temperature is, how that changes or how, what that's like over a long period of time. So what's the average temperature in March, for example, versus what it's going to be like today. A couple of analogies to use. One is that uh, weather is what you, um, or excuse me, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So again, we expect March to be this kind of variable time period where it can be warm, it can be cold. And so far we've gotten that, but, um, you know, we also expect December to be fairly cold. And think about last year, we didn't get that, right? So the difference between weather and climate is that climate is December is typically colder than November is. The weather is the fact that last year it wasn't. Uh, another good way uh, to think about it is that um, climate is your personality and weather is your mood. So, um, you know, I have a pretty easygoing personality, I like to think, and sometimes I can be um, not easygoing. So, uh, so yeah, that's sort of the way it goes with weather and climate. So what, how that relates to climate change is, is that what climate change is, is a change in our, in our climate. And I know that sounds very, uh, uh, you know, uh, redundant, but basically it's this idea that our sort of expectations, our background behavior of the atmosphere is changing. And so what that means is, is change over a long period of time and it's changing sort of the baseline. Uh, and so on top of climate change, like for example, increasing temperatures in the wintertime or the summertime in Illinois, we have weather variability, right? So, so for example, despite the fact that we have warmer winters uh, overall and that our winter temperatures are warming at a faster rate than all the other seasons, February and January this year, we're below normal. We're colder than normal, right? That's that variability on top of that. Um, and uh, another example is that uh, summer, springtime rainfall in northern Illinois has been increasing significantly over the last 100 years. And last year, Chicago had its third driest spring on record. Right? So we can have that variability, that's sort of the weather on top of that long-term trend. Um, but what's important here is that the climate sort of dictates the weather you get. So we're not going to get, um, you know, a 125 degree day here in Illinois. Uh, at least I really hope not. It would take really something uh, spectacular uh, in a bad way to get that. At the same time, we're also not going to probably ever see minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit here in Illinois, right? Because our climate just doesn't get that hot. It doesn't get that cold. We can't, we can't really see those extremes. Um, and so what that means, though, is that as your climate changes, it means that the weather you can experience, potentially experience, also changes. Uh, we saw that on the Pacific Northwest this last summer, if you remember back of that extreme heat wave in parts of Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, that was an area that had never, at least in, 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 in observed record in the last 150 years, seen that kind of extreme heat. Um, but because the background climate is changing, is warming, it means that those extremes that would have previously not been attainable um, in British Columbia or Washington are now possible, still very unlikely. But, but definitely possible. So that's kind of what climate change is in a nutshell, is a change in that background condition. All right, so plants and <clears throat> insects and all this stuff, they kind of respond to uh, the climate. And a lot of times we're seeing plants flowering or coming up earlier, like 
I've seen on social media of, you know, tulips and all that stuff starting to pop up um, already. And a lot of times scientists refer to that kind of that interaction as phenology, kind of that timing of everything. Um, and a lot of these people that study that are indicating that climate change is causing this. Does that kind of line up with what we're observing with the, the climate data? Yeah. So as far as the phenology is concerned, we have seen in, in many global regions, including here in the Midwest, uh, phenology shifting earlier into the spring. Um, and so, you know, what a, a plant that may, for example, typically flower in the, you know, the last two weeks of April or first week of May is maybe shifting by five to seven days over the last 50 years. Um, there's a handful of plants that are trapped by the, the phenology network in the U.S. One of them is a lilac um, cultivar. The other one is a honeysuckle cultivar. And both of those have seen uh, shifts of anywhere between five and, 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 and 14 days of earlier phenology over the last hundred years or so. Um, importantly, though, it is that there is that variability to it. And so, um, you know, any given year, the phenology of the plant is generally going to respond to temperatures of that year, of course. Uh, and so that means that if we do have a colder winter or spring, then we're going to get a little bit of a later phenology. But because our winters and springs are warming overall, we also see that trend in the earlier phenology. Now that, that's an interesting observation. So when we were going to Florida almost a month ago, we, we stopped overnight in Georgia. And the news story at that time was, are our peach trees going to get enough cold days? Because here in Illinois, we're like, oh, is are they going to get that late spring frost but down in Georgia they're like it's been so warm we might not have the enough uh, cold days built up for our peach uh, to to set buds and flower and everything so I I know trend is that something that you know we're seeing that that impact in um, like things like peaches and Ken I don't know you work also with peach growers is that is that becoming an issue or are we still worried about those random late spring frosts well, I mean, for, for, um, and I actually, I, I saw Ken at the, the, the Southern region growers meeting, and I talked about this a little bit where, um, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit of research, um, with Elizabeth Wally at an extension and, and trying to understand, um, changes in winter climate and with the chill hours, with the change in spring freeze risk and that sort of thing. And you're right. What we're seeing is that, uh, the historical trends over the last 50 to 70 years have been an increase in winter chill hour accumulation uh, in northern Illinois and up into parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan. Um, but there hasn't been a like a, a concurrent decreasing trend in winter chill hour accumulation to get enough cold, as you mentioned, in southern Illinois. But when you move further south, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, that and Florida, that is where we actually have seen that, where it's decreasing there because winters are warming there and they're already on that kind of threshold of, of, of accumulating enough of those hours, accumulating enough of that cold that they're actually seeing, um, you know, the Point where they may actually be, and looking at the projections in the future, maybe seeing more of a of a risk of not meeting those those necessary thresholds uh, to have a you know a good a good crop uh, of, of peaches. Um, what we've seen from the projections, climate model projections, you know, projecting out the change uh, over the next fifty to seventy years towards the end of the century, is that uh, winters are likely to continue to warm throughout Illinois, and that warming will um, continue to increase winter chill hour accumulation in northern Illinois, but we actually aren't seeing a significant decrease in southern Illinois. So here in Illinois, we may actually be in that kind of 
area where we we can see maybe the, the range in certain ways of certain cultivars of peach actually expand northward, but not necessarily be far too far south to see the rain, the same similar range shift too far uh, north, if that makes sense. Now, the spring freeze issue is a completely different beast and is much more complex. Um, what we have seen is because winters are warming, um, the, the projections do show an increased risk of of spring freeze damage, not because spring freezes are getting later, they're actually getting earlier, but because winters are warming, that phenology is shifting earlier, as you all just mentioned, faster than spring freezes are moving earlier, if that makes sense. So as you can imagine a two-person race, one is the, the phenology of the peach crop or apple or berries, whatever you want to do, and, and how quickly it breaks bud and how quickly it flowers and things like that. The other person in the race is your spring freeze. You know, kind of you're thinking about the last spring freeze you're going to have, the damaging freeze. And um, the phenology is shifting so much faster than the spring freeze is that it puts us at an increased risk of having spring freeze damage, despite the fact that uh, that springs are warming. It's it's an interesting paradox. Um, but like I said, there's a lot of complexity to it, which means there's a decent amount of uncertainty. So there's a lot more work that we got to do to kind of figure that out. Excellent. And if folks are interested more in these phenology, uh, a lot of them are citizen science projects. We can leave links to those. Uh, we know there's one with the lilacs, the honeysuckle. There's also one, there's a redbud one that we got uh, a message about. And then there's one for kids. So it's called Project Bud Burst. Um, uh, we can leave links to those down in the show notes below. Um, shifting away from Illinois, looking more globally here for a second, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They release reports routinely about climate change, um, whether it's data, predictions, things like that. Where are we going to be at the end of the century in terms of our global temperature rise based upon some of the, the research and data that's been generated? Yeah, so the first report that came out in August uh, of last year really kind of laid this out to say, okay, here's what climate change is. It, here's what global warming is, the increase in global average temperatures, as you just alluded to. Um, and here, based on our scenarios uh, of, of changes in energy production, changes in land use development, changes in agriculture, things, everything like that, under these scenarios, um, here's what temperature and, and other impacts are going to look like by the end of the century. Um, and, and they have these under various scenarios, so you can see, okay, if we uh, keep going the way we've been going. Here's where we're going to be likely, and here's the range of uncertainty. If we cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and reduce concentrations, and, and by the way, those greenhouse gas concentrations, carbon dioxide, methane, um, those are the two big ones. They drive the bus. Uh, those are responsible for the global warming trend and the, the um, consequential changes in our climate. And so um, what has been shown by several IPCC reports before these last two, but these two kind of reinforce the point, is that um, the impacts we see as far as temperature and precipitation, things like that, are the, the, the magnitude of those impacts by middle and end of the century are directly linked to uh, greenhouse gas concentrations and how those change between now and the end of the century. So with all that being said, there's these kind of magic numbers that have been laid out. Uh, at first, it was a two degree Celsius warming, right? Which is which is pre-industrial, relative to pre-industrial, before we started to uh, uh, to to industrialize and create energy based off of fossil fuels. Here is, um, you know, we, we've gone if we go two degrees above that level, which we're not at yet. Um, that's where we see if we go beyond that two degrees, that's where we see the impacts really start to ramp up. 
It's not that we don't have impacts less than two degrees Celsius, um, but it's just that we see those impacts really begin to ramp up after that point. Um, and then, and then later on, a few years ago, the Paris uh, meetings uh, happen, and they say, okay, now it's one and a half degrees Celsius because we've we've refined our models. We actually should stay below that level. What the latest report suggested is that under the moderate emission scenario, which is the one I like to use when I'm talking about these sorts of things, because it's achievable, but it's not a guarantee, right? So the the very low emission scenario would require so much change between now and the end of this decade that it's hard for me to say that we can attain it you know, reasonably. It's possible, but it's not, it's not um, realistic, if that, if that, in, my, in my professional opinion. The high emission scenario is basically saying, if we don't do enough change you know, uh, by 2050, 2060, 2070, here's where we're gonna be at. The moderate emission scenario is basically, we make changes we need to make, um, we make them on a reasonable timeline, you know, going quote unquote net zero, meaning we're emitting less than we're taking away by 2050, move on. So it's a more realistic scenario, right? It's something, mm-hmm. it's an achievable goal. Uh, under that moderate emission scenario, what the IPCC reports suggest is that we will still overshoot that two degrees Celsius warming relative to the uh, industrial, the pre-industrial period. Not by much. I think the range was something like 2.4 to 1.8. So it kind of splits that to two degrees Celsius mark. But I think, again, you know, we as humans like to put down like solid thresholds, this number, you give me this number and then, but, but in reality, again, the difference between two degrees Celsius and 2.1 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius and 1.9 degrees Celsius warming is, is really small, right? Basically what we need to be doing here is, is shoot for that goal, the modern emissions goal and every single uh, ton of, of, of uh, emissions that are reduced between now and 2050 and every single 10th of a degree Celsius that we get below whatever that goal is, is better if that makes sense. So um, that that's sort of where we're at. So it kind of paints this picture of saying, okay, look, if we don't do anything, we're going to be in a bad spot. Even if we do do things at an appropriate timing, right, and pretty quickly here, um, we're still going to see impacts, uh, but they're going to be a lot less than if we don't do anything. Um, but again, this moderate emissions timeline which is not a rosy picture for a lot of places on, on the globe, but is a reasonable timeline here. It still requires some significant changes uh, mm-hmm. between in, in, in global greenhouse gas emissions. Again, in a relatively short period of time, we're less than 30 years from 2050, if, if you can believe that. And so, yeah, I know, I know. Um, and, and so, uh, so that is, um, that, that's, that's kind of where we're at now. So, okay. Zooming even farther out is just a random thing that popped in my head here. So other planets in our solar system, like Venus, they have a runaway greenhouse effect. Is that at all something, a risk for Earth? Because I just, just throwing that out there. I just a question. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable question. It, it's not really uh, um, a, a sort of realistic thing that, that, that climate scientists are seeing um, as far as like a runaway greenhouse effect with, with Venus and, and having a, a, an almost an uninhabitable, not almost Venus is uninhabitable by humans, mm-hmm. at least if we were to just step down without any protection. So um, the, 
there are these kind of like uh, uh, low probability, high impact sorts of situations that IPCC talks about. One of which is a is a gradual sh uh, slowing of the kind of the thermohaline circulation. I don't know if, if any of you have seen the the day after tomorrow that that yes. kind of climate. Yeah, okay, movie. <laughs> For those of you who are uh, uh, either don't pay attention to it or younger before this movie or came out. Um, it basically the idea was that um, uh, all the ice in Antarctica melts at once and it, 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 uh, it drops the salinity of the ocean, right? Because fresh water comes into the ocean and it drops the salinity, which, which salinity is a really important factor for global circulation of air and heat. Uh, and what it does is it makes the whole Northern hemisphere an ice, basically an, you know, an ice age. Uh, and it does so in a matter of days right? The day after tomorrow, the idea. So that's one of those high impact, but low probability events. And, and, and basically IPCC, the, the authors building off of the, the, the great amount of research has been done saying this is, has a very low likelihood of actually occurring this sort of slowing down. If it does, it, it would be problematic, especially for Northern Europe. But even if it did happen, we're talking timelines of decades, Mm -hmm. before we would see significant changes in significant cooling in some of those global regions. So even in that situation where it's a much more realistic kind of, of, of high impact event than it would be like a, like a runaway greenhouse like you acted about, like you asked about, it's still very, very slim chances of actually happening. Um, and and uh, if, it, if it did happen in, in one, in some magnitude or another, it would be over a very long time period. Okay, so sorry, Dennis Quaid. It's a, not a two-day event. It's it's not the day after tomorrow. It's that's yeah. right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, but it makes for a good movie, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so over the past couple of years, we've been seeing more stress on our food systems. What type of impacts um, from global warming can we or are we seeing to Illinois agriculture? Yeah, boy, we could have a just a whole a whole uh, uh, a segment on on just impacts to corn and beans alone, let alone especially crop agriculture and the things we eat. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the biggest change we've seen that's had an impact to agriculture, I would say, over the last 50 to 70 years in, in Illinois has been um, water issues. Um, usually that comes in the form of just excessive amounts of water in the spring and early summer. Um, so extremely wet soils, um, which, you know, can delay planting. Um, if you do get it in, then, um, or, or then, then you have issues with disease stress and things like that. Kind of what we saw last year, where it was just persistently wet throughout West and Central Illinois. Um, and, and, uh, and then of course, you delay harvest as well. Um, if you have, uh, you know, for, 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 for perennial crops, um, even that wetness in the spring, again, it reduces the amount of field work you can have. I mean, obviously you can't get things done if it's super muddy outside. Uh, and if you try to get things done, you have issues with soil compaction. And, um, and then of course the intense rainfall we've been seeing, uh, has creates issues of soil erosion. We've seen a lot of soil erosion across the Midwest over the last 50 to 70 years. Of course, that's the lifeblood of agriculture is soil, and that's washing away in our streams, going out to the Gulf of Mexico, and it's carrying with it nutrients. Uh, and those nutrients create an economic problem. That's that's uh, nutrients that are, aren't on your field that your plants can use, but it's also nutrients in our waterways that create decreased water quality. So um, that has been a big issue. And uh, unfortunately, the projections indicate uh, that it's going to continue to be an issue. Um, that, that, that one of the big signals for Illinois climate changing is more precipitation overall in winter and spring, and the models have pretty good agreement about that, and more intense precipitation throughout the year. Uh, so even if we don't get more rainfall in the summer between now and the end of the century, it's going to come in these shorter bursts. 
Um, and I honestly, when I'm talking to farmers, that's probably the number one thing that they, I see most nodding heads about, like the, the, those who have been farming for more than just 20 years say that more than anything, the rainfall patterns have changed. Like I could, I could bank on that inch and a half of rain coming in four or five different events, as opposed to it raining an inch and a half in two hours. And then I get nothing for two weeks. Um, and when I see those nodding heads, it, 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 that anecdotal evidence, of course, it's not scientific evidence, but it's anecdotal evidence is, is really important to say like, look, people are seeing the impacts of this. So that's one big thing. The other thing is um, uh, changing temperatures, um, you know, especially nighttime minimum temperatures, you know, uh, both in agriculture and public health, we tend to kind of disregard those changes in nighttime temperatures, but they can be really important. Um, so in the agricultural realm, what we've seen is that every single season, but particularly in the summertime, an increase in very high nighttime minimum temperatures. So we think about nights when the temperature doesn't get below 70 or 75 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you know, with that, that's been linked to issues issues with, with uh, corn respiration, for example, and sugar conversion, which can mean issues with ear fill and, and things like that. Um, for specialty crops, there's been research done showing high, uh, really high nighttime temperatures um, can cause a disproportionate amount of flower abortion and tomatoes. Um, you're nodding your head, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad yep. that that wasn't wrong, uh, as well as uh, apparently uh, a preferential formation of male versus female flowers in some pumpkin varieties. Uh, that was another thing I'd heard of. Um, and, and this is this is the kind of thing is that, you know, those nighttime minimum temperatures, yes, it we haven't really seen a, a change in necessarily the extreme high temperatures in the summertime, but those those nighttime temperatures being can continuously being so warm really creates a problem. And then the public health realm, of course, when we're thinking about specialty crops, it can be a pretty human demand sort of um, sector uh, re requires a lot of, of, of human labor uh, outside. Um, it's a lot harder that the, the productivity of that labor decreases when you have those very, very warm nights, especially. Um, and also, of course, you're putting your labor force at a higher risk of exposure to extreme heat it can be really problematic. And of course, we know as a lot of times those farm laborers are some of the most vulnerable to those anyway. Um, so that's kind of the picture of like the extremes in weather, right? The weather, winter and, and the rain temperature. I would say though that, and I don't would say, I, I do say this when I'm talking to farm groups is that, that the number one thing I think that we in Illinois will have to be dealing with in agriculture as a climate change impact will be the change in integrated pest management. Um, changes in disease and insect pests, weeds. Um, that is something that is sort of this kind of, indirect impact of climate change, but something we've definitely been seeing. So for example, a, a, a higher proportion of overwintering of insect pests in the wintertime because it's just not getting as cold. The warmer summers mean that those insect pests can go through many more generations. And so you have a higher amount of, of, um, of, uh, of, of pressure. The wetness that I talked about, that means fungal disease pressure. I don't think folks, I've never seen as many crop dusters fly this summer as I saw this last summer. It was just amazing here in central Illinois. And, and, and for a long period of time, from basically the first of June all the way through the end of August, they were flying because they just could not get on top of, a lot of folks could not get on top of the, the, the fungal disease pressure. And then weeds, you know, hearing uh, Aaron Hager and folks talk from the university, you know, it's like water hemp is, is this amazing evolutionary uh, wonder that, you know, you spray something on it and two days later, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the next generation is, is completely, um, 
you know, oblivious to it, doesn't even uh, respond to it. So these sorts of issues, and then we have issues like invasive uh, species uh, issues, you know, things like that as, as their range expands within a warmer Illinois. So I think that's really the, the sort of insidious impacts come from integrated pest management, because it's not like an extreme rain event that just drops two inches of rain on your field and now you can't get in or um, an ex you know, a drought where it just destroys your crop, right? It's sort of this, this insidious thing where, you know, you don't, it, it's just kind of like more management decisions, you know, more, more issues related to those sorts of things. And I think it just makes things harder for farmers in Illinois. With that being said, I do want to just put in a caveat here to say that uh, my big spiel about climate change for ag is that it just makes it harder. It makes management decisions much more important. It makes things like soil and water conservation much more important, those sorts of things. Um, it, it doesn't make it impossible. You know, some of the outlooks and some of the, the, the more productive, uh, you know, global agricultural regions, like, for example, sub-Saharan Africa or in California, their outlook for climate change is much more dire than ours is here in the Midwest. Um, so I don't want to paint the picture that it's, it's going to be catastrophic to Illinois agriculture in a, in a way that it may be in other global regions, but I also don't want to paint the picture that it's going to be negligible. So, so it's this kind of idea that it's, it makes those management decisions just a lot more hard, a lot more challenging. So, yeah, so you, you pretty much covered the next question. Um, oh, sorry. So I, no, it's okay. <laughs> but I can say, you know, from living in Florida for, I don't know, six years, you know, there is no break in Florida with, with the pests and diseases. They don't, for most of the state. So it's just constant, you know, insect pressure and disease pressure. Um, you know, I'm assuming we'll still get a little bit of a break, but I don't think we're going to, we won't get the break like we will. So like you mentioned, you know, we'll have more things able to overwinter that maybe weren't able to, um, or more of them will survive. We won't get as much winter kill. Uh, and then those populations will just, will ramp up sooner. Um, and, and then more, those more generations where we have one generation, maybe we're getting two or we have two, maybe we're getting three. And it just extends and, and causes more problems. So yeah, I guess job security for some people, but not well, good that's for most. yeah, that's exactly yeah, no, exactly it. And 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 like I said, when you know, and and then you take into account like these issues with with um you know weeds becoming um there's the word for it, and you all know it. I'm, I I can't I can't remember it off the top of my head, but basically like um you know it's just not. The, the, the herbicide or whatever doesn't work on it any longer, you know, and resistant, and, uh, resistant, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, those sorts of things, they just kind of compile all of these management decisions, you know, and, and, and so, you know, if you look back the last 30 years of farming, whether it be commodity crop farming or specialty crop farming in Illinois, nobody in their right mind would say it's been easy, but looking forward in the next 30 years, I think the last 30 years will probably have been easier than the, than the next 30 and the 30 beyond that, just because these challenges that we've never dealt with before, or we've dealt with, but not to the same magnitude are, are, are ramping up. So Ken, you're not excited for more bugs? Oh, I am excited <laughs> for more bugs. <laughs> and maybe one of the few people that is. It's but... <laughs> more opportunity to study them. There you go. So, uh, Trent, another kind of avenue of, of thinking about climate change and its impact on, on Illinois uh, cities and towns. A lot of our tree species that we've planted, they do their job of, 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 of modifying the microclimates within our cities and towns. Um, so having these discussions with other people talking about increasing temperatures, how they might show a decline and even death of urban trees 
is that like a one-two punch? Because when you lose trees, suddenly your microclimates, your cities become hotter. Um, are, are you working with, or do you know of projects that are looking forward to urban canopies and making sure that they can be resilient? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So um, you're right. The one of the big, um, uh, you know, we talk about climate change adaptation. That's the idea that we're going to see climate change impacts. Like I talked about, we need to minimize uh, the exposure of people and ecology and everything else to those impacts. And we need to minimize the vulnerability to those impacts. That's where adaptation comes in. Um, and one big adaptation for urban communities that where we have the urban heat island effect along with increasing uh, risk of exposure to extreme heat um, is uh, increasing the uh, size of the, of, the, of the urban canopy. Right, so green space or green infrastructure is kind of these these words that are thrown around a lot these days. Basically, planting trees to reduce the amount of the, the actual temperature in the urban core, and targeting tree planting in especially in neighborhoods that have a disproportionate exposure. So those that are hotter neighborhoods overall and vulnerability. So for many socioeconomic factors, um, are are at higher vulnerability of of health impacts and things like that to to extreme heat. But you're right. Like, I mean, I hear about these commercials about, you know, credit cards where you, every swipe they plant a tree or like we planted a million trees. And the question is, um, how are you planting those trees? What trees are you planting? Where are you planting them? And uh, and I had actually not thought about that in great depth until I um, had begun working with the Morton Arboretum in, in Chicago. Uh, and we are actually put in a proposal and hopefully it'll be funded. We'll see. Uh, but but continue work regardless on on understanding the impact of climate change on the urban canopy in a way, uh, uh, starting with Chicago, but of course it could, it, it, the, the framework can work for any, you know, even smaller, medium-sized city in, in the state or, or world um, that, uh, you know, understanding those impacts and, and framing them as a way for management of those trees, of the urban canopy. So the idea is that if we can, if we, if we take the, the kind of baseline that the city of Chicago has very little resources for watering trees. I was actually flat out amazed that there was not necessarily a year to year budget for just simply watering trees. That means that if you plant that tree, wherever you plant it, um, it may have to survive without human intervention, uh, without, without, and, and so, um, that means that you really have to be precise about how you plant the tree, make sure it's not just kind of just willy nilly thrown in there, a bunch of soil compaction, and it can't get water or anything like that. It also means that you have to plant the right tree in the right spot. And, and so, um, you know, the kind of things that we've learned, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, for example, with the, the um, ash uh, tree decimation is that if we plant the same tree everywhere, um, and we get those, those bugs that Ken was talking about in there, those diseases, wipe them all out. I go around my neighborhood and everybody and their dog has four or five maples. And, and so what did I do when I need to plant a couple of trees? I did not buy a maple because if we get, you know, the maples look healthy, but then there's some kind of, you know, whatever, um, East Brazilian uh, maple bug. I'm completely making that up by the way, that, that all of a sudden makes their way in. Right. And, 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 and decimates. And like you, and like you mentioned, it not only has an issue with, we, we decrease the, the, the green space, which is a problem. People are, I mean, I mean, having trees around folks has been shown to help physical health, but also mental health. But that has that, like you mentioned, the one-two punch of the, of the adaptive capacity that was built into the urban system from planting that tree is now gone. And now the city of Chicago that already doesn't have much money to do this has to plant another tree or just kind of forget about it. And so 
the kind of work we need to do is first understanding the sort of um, the places in, in cities that are most at risk or most vulnerable to things like extreme heat. Uh, the same thing can work with 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 uh, intense rainfall. We get a burst of storm water, uh, and we, we need green spaces to kind of absorb that burst so that it doesn't all go into the sewer system or all going into the stormwater drainage system. Um, so understanding those, those those neighborhoods that are most vulnerable to them, and working with those neighborhoods to implement a a um, a sustainable green space plan. And that's what's most important. The sustainability means that if we are going to see more extreme heat, perhaps more precipitation variability in the summertime, which means longer dry spells, not necessarily drought, but dry spells. Um, but then in the spring, it's going to be very, very wet means you need trees in certain areas that can withstand perhaps extreme heat, cold snaps, uh, really intense rainfall. Right. And, and, and maybe inundated roots for a prolonged period of time and then not a whole lot of water. Right. And so you're left with, you know, there are some trees out there that maybe can do those things. Um, but, you know, making sure that you still can plant a, a good, diverse urban canopy, um, it, it's really important. So that's kind of where we're hoping to move there is to take the climate information and go beyond warmer and wetter overall. Um, and, and we just need to plant trees to we need to plant these trees. Like here's the list of trees that is good for this part of the city. Um, that sort of thing, and, and making sure that in the constraints of budgets and time and, and things like that, 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 that the urban canopy can survive and thrive uh, throughout the next you know, century. So, a little bit off topic, but you kind of think you talk about you lose that tree canopy, you know, that microclimate kind of warms up. Has there been any people looking at like, you know, when it gets hotter, we run air conditioning more and that heats, that produces heat. You know, how does it, how is that going to affect? Has anybody looked at that? Yeah, there's a couple of researchers at the University of Illinois who are doing some really interesting kind of global modeling of that in, in different urban areas around the globe. And, and it is a really important um, factor when it comes to the fact that, you know, we have an increase in temperatures in the summertime. What folks who have uh, access to air conditioning are going to run their air conditioner. Obviously, they're not going to let it get 80, 85 degrees in their house. They're going to turn on their air conditioner. The air conditionings themselves produce quite a bit, as you mentioned, of, of heat. Um, and that is uh, so that adds to the overall heat uh, budget of the urban area. And so the feedback from that is actually can be pretty significant. Um, I saw a presentation a few months ago on this for couple of of, uh, of, of, um, of global cities and it was significant. It was enough that that it, it can have um, a, a noticeable uh, uh, increase in the risk of adverse health impacts of, of, of residents of urban areas just from that that additional heat from heating and cooling systems alone. So it's just is pretty incredible. Um, so Trent, you give talks all over Illinois about climate and probably even more so after Chris has spread your name throughout Western Illinois. Um, but undoubtedly you've engaged with climate change um, skeptics. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I don't have a silver bullet um, to, to, to handle, uh, to, to, talk with folks who are skeptical or just downright sort of denying climate change. Um, you know, uh, it doesn't manifest itself a lot. I'll be honest with you. Um, mainly because the, the folks who are, um, 
just again downright dismissive of climate change. They're they're actually pretty small in number. It can may not maybe not seem that way, but based off of of of, of surveys after surveys done by the Yale Climate Change Communication Group, folks like that, it's actually a very small number of people who are just again dismissive of climate change altogether. Climate's not changing, whatever it is. Instead, what you get is folks who either are skeptical about the cause of climate change, you know, um, human uh, caused. Uh, global warming and climate change, or are sort of indifferent uh, about it. They think, ah, you know, my planning goes year to year. I'm not really all that concerned about 20 to 30 years. For the former group, the folks who are, um, you know, they, they've seen rainfall rates changing. They know it's warmer. They don't deny the, the data that I'm showing them, but they just, they don't think it's really human caused, or they're not maybe all that concerned about the cause. It just depends on the conversation. Most of the conversations I have with ag folks is in the adaptation realm, not the mitigation realm, um, because I think that's where I can make headway the, the most is to say, okay, we have climate change. Here are the impacts we've seen. Um, and in many cases, those are undeniable. And, and, and here are the impacts that, that the models are telling us we, we should look out for. And they line up very well. You know, the, the, the impacts we've seen, very likely to continue into the future. Um, so what does that mean for you, right? Like, what are the decisions that you make if you have extremely wet conditions or if you see a new pest come out or if you spray um, or if you know that, that, that um, you know, it's really wet so you can't get out and spray the weeds. And so what do you do now after post-emergence, you know, management, th things like that, that, you know, kind of connect what climate change means for their their kind of what their mindset is day to day, year to year management of, of what they're doing and trying to trying to, you know, build out economically, environmentally sustainable agriculture. So that's kind of where I interact with those folks. So often in that situation, their skepticism about the cause of climate change is irrelevant to the conversation. Um, and, and the reason I do that is because um, that if I engage in the sense to say, like, you did this and you did this and you did this, right, that's going to tune me out. And, and, and then we don't get anywhere, right? And so, so the, in that situation, that's kind of how, how, how I handle it. Um, if we do talk about mitigation, the cause of climate change and the fact that we need to move to greenhouse gas, lower greenhouse gas emissions, reduce them altogether, um, it's, 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 it's a, it, it can be a bit of a trickier conversation. So again, I, I, I try to play the, you know, again, I'm hopefully a trusted source of information um, because I, I don't make things political. I specifically don't make things political. Um, I am, you know, looking out for, I'm trying to establish myself as saying, okay, I'm looking out for folks in Illinois, whether, whether it be, you know, water, water planners or, um, you know, just folks in urban and rural areas, farmers, whatever that may be, you know, I'm trying to see what's coming down the pipe, what we've seen, what's coming down the pipe and, and, and make us all less vulnerable to it. That's kind of my job. So from that standpoint, here are the things we need to do with, with mitigation. That's sort of how I, I kind of handle that thing. And, and in, in groups of, of folks that I know are going to be less receptive to that kind of mitigation conversation, it's, it's just kind of those baby steps of saying, okay, we really need to be doing this. Like, by the way, and, and reinforcing the point that for agriculture, a lot of the strategies that uh, are, you know, mitigative of climate change are also helping with our adaptation. So it's like, okay, okay, you don't, you don't believe that, that uh, expanding the use of cover crops is actually going to, um, you know, reduce climate change because it's not human cause. It has nothing to do with carbon, whatever like that, but it is going to make it so that, um, you know, so that you're, you're, you're not losing as much soil and nutrients off your 
farm, right? Um, it, it actually, in, in, in some studies, make it more profitable in some cases, right? And, and so these are the kind of conversations of like framing it in the sense of, of what folks are really caring about. And, and, and that's where I mentioned the silver bullet because I, I, I don't have one because I can't describe the strategies that I take other than just the generic knowing your audience. Um, and again, it's not just knowing your audience that I'm talking to farmers, I'm talking to wastewater managers, I'm talking to, um, you know, uh, um, environmental activists, right? Now, it's more about what do these folks care about truly? And what are they thinking about at different time scales? You know, how does climate change actually impact their things that they're thinking about? Um, and of course, when it comes to farmers, it's, it's, it's has to be the sustainability part of it and that's economic sustainability it's environmental sustainability um and so if you know if you come in saying you have to do x y or z and and everybody in the room knows that that is not going to be it's going to lead to complete loss of profits then again it's 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 irrelevant to the conversation so that that's sort of again the long-winded description but again it, it's, it's one of those things where knowing what the audience is thinking about knowing what they're decision making is and making climate change relevant for that decision making and i can't tell you if it's been super effective or not <laughs> to be honest with you uh i try to get feedback i try to listen to folks who are smarter than i am at the national level but speaking about climate change folks like Catherine hale folks like that but um but you know it, it really does vary depending on the situation in the, the theme of mitigation what are some things that you know the average joe schmo can do in their own yard or garden yeah, it can seem like it's really daunting, right? That your individual actions mean absolutely nothing. Um, so the, the, <laughs> and and we cut. No, uh, no, uh, no. It's it's uh, right out of time. Right yeah, out of time. yeah. <laughs> I've given presentations like that when I was really early on. I was giving presentations. I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, like it's so doom and gloom. No, no, no. It it. Um, so for, first and foremost, um, we have to acknowledge the fact that um, globally. Climate change is a global issue. Mitigation has to happen globally, um, and that systemic change has to happen. Um, it, it can't just be individual action, but it, it it can be individual action that can help with that systemic change. Um, and I think that's where people lie. So, for example, in your gardening activities, um, if you want to, if you think to yourself, you know what, I want to help with pollinators. Right? We didn't talk about climate change and pollinator impacts could be pretty, pretty problematic. Um, so I want to build a butterfly garden, or I have this wet spot in my yard where every time it rains, water runs off and it carries with it everything else. And it runs into my stormwater drainage system and everything like that. I'm gonna put it in a rain garden, right? something like that, whatever that may be. That is, yes, it may seem like in the global scheme of things, your 10 meter by 10 meter rain garden absolutely means nothing. But in fact, it doesn't because a it, it, it reduces your vulnerability to extreme temperatures, extreme precipitation, it, it improves pollinator health, things like that, where you are, right? It also gets you and probably your neighbors engaged in the conversation of the actions that can be taken, which is, which is far more important than people, I think people take that for granted. And we think about all of the, the global issues, right, that are around us, the current events. We had the State of the Union address last night, which did not mention climate change, unfortunately, but all of these other sorts of current events that were mentioned. And, um, you know, we talk about them. I mean, we talk about them to friends and family, you know, um, and climate change tends not to be one of those topics. Um, even though a lot of people care about it. again, those Yale surveys are saying more and more folks, more and more Americans are concerned, if not a 
alarmed by climate change. Um, and so getting that conversation with friends and family going, like, oh, I saw you put in that, um, that, 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 that big thing of rocks and plants. What is that? Oh, it's a rain garden. It actually does this. Oh, you know what? I, I probably put that in too. Or not even a rain garden, just a rain barrel right? To help off that offshoot, you know, like, oh, you got a rain barrel. I had a neighbor with that conversation just a little bit ago, you know, and he was talking about how he just get this flush of water out of his gutter that would flood his part of his property. And it was like, put in a rain barrel, you know, and, and, uh, and, and then, Hey, look at that. We have drier summers. Now we have this water source that I can water the garden with. So those are the kind of things that, that again, it seems very small on the local scale, but, um, getting getting folks interested in those sorts of things interested in engaging um and then that neighbor who you know you have that conversation with also happens to sit on your school board and then the they say well, you know what maybe we should start integrating more climate change uh, uh curriculum into our into our school system or they sit on the the, the the town board or the local forest district or something like that like let's take this initiative right so that's i think the biggest thing that folks can do is basically talking about it with their friends and family um, and, and doing what they feel like they want to do to contribute to, to, to the issue. Maybe for some people, they don't garden, they just want to get an electric vehicle, right, or put up solar panels or something like that, right? That, 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 that can, again, can be important to see that, you know. So that, that's kind of the start of it. Um, the other part of it is, is, is not feeling guilty, that, that can come to it as well, um, where, you know, if you, if you don't want to plant a pollinator garden or you want to eat that hamburger right um it's like uh, uh it, it can feel a little guilty you know um you know like for example i was i was renting a car uh, a couple of months ago and the guy's like we can give you a free upgrade to uh to mustang gt and i was like well i'm gonna take that because yes i am a climate scientist but that's a that's a pretty nice looking car. And, and I, and I, you know, and, and, and uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where, and the reason I say don't feel guilty about it is, is because, you know, um, we make this whole big thing about the carbon footprint and what are, how our lives are, are contributing to, to, to climate change. But in fact, when we think about our individual actions, they're in this realm of a system, you know? So for example, if you wanted to decrease your carbon footprint, quote unquote, from transportation, great, you can walk to work. How many people are actually going to walk to work every single day? Some people can, that's fantastic, but a lot of people can't. Um, and it completely disregarding the issues of accessibility, right? Uh, and uh, it, it, it's not reasonable within the realm of where we live. And so that there's only so much that folks can do and feeling guilty or unproductive, things like that are just really not, not, uh, there's just some productive ways of, of, of feeling. So, um, it's like, it's my two big points is like getting engaged, um, local community activism, local groups, just talking with your neighbors and friends and family. Um, and then, and then just not, not being swept up in this climate anxiety and climate guilt that can get us there. The only other thing I can, I can mention, and, and, uh, this always is one of those things that we have to be careful of, um, is, uh, is, is, is voting. Um, you know, we, we all are, are voters, at least a lot of us are. Um, and so what I say when it comes to that, especially when I get asked in some groups about like, um, you know, how should we engage politically? That's a pretty charged question, right, for, for a scientist. The way that I put it is basically that, um, you know, if climate change is an issue for you, just like any other issue, then, then vote in such a way, you know, feel comfortable voting in such a way. You know, we, uh, if climate change isn't an issue for you, um, then, then um, 
you know, may not make sense to vote that way. But but that is something to consider. Climate change is every other issue of is that important to me? Um, is that something I want to try to convince others that is important? Uh, and if so, then that's something that folks can do as well. Well, if I had a, last time, my takeaway was thermal inertia. But if my takeaway <laughs> this time, uh, I I loved how you framed it too when talking to the individual of reducing your vulnerability to climate change. And so I think that might be a method I will adopt in, in my teaching, and then hopefully that generates conversation. And then, yeah, I I think that is an excellent way to to put the. Uh, a little cherry on top of this, this, this big Sunday, this ice cream Sunday that we've created. And we did, I mean, I'd say we scratched the surface, right, Trent? I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, um, you know, you get some, some entomology folks here and, and I mean, you talk about bugs and climate change for two hours just alone, mm -hmm. right? And, and um, uh, so this is definitely scratching the surface, but it's important, you know, to the, these kind of conversations and just if nothing else to kind of get kind of gauge the overall size of the issue of climate change and and what it takes to, to you know, solve the problem. I think we've got a new episode. Bugs and go. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Trent, thank you so much for being here once again uh, on the Good Growing Podcast. And uh, just it was it's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Um, this was a, a very enjoyable to have you on here. Thank you very much. Hey, it's always great to be on. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always great to talk to you all. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by Ken this week, I believe. Um, so, uh, uh, Ken, Katie, uh, uh, thank you very much for being here every week as, as you always are. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Trent. It's always enjoyable to hear you speak and share your wisdom with us. And Chris and Ken, thanks for always being reliable. Thank you, Trent. Learned a lot, and uh, we'll be in touch about the bug episode and climate change. <laughs> hey, hey, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I'd, I'd like to learn a lot more. So, absolutely. Well, guys, this has been a blast. Um, coming up on the Good Run Podcast here in March, we are going to be welcoming Chelsea Harback back to the show, and she's going to talk about disease impacts for plants and how the historical significance think St. Patty's Day potato famine. So uh, look for that coming up in March. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best and that is listening or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching and as always, keep on growing.